Thank you, and once again, good morning to students and teachers of the Word of God. We hope that you'll join us today, now for just a very few minutes, on the Theological Seminar broadcast, and continue a while with us in our studies on the existence of God, the first subject in any theological course, which deals with the Trinity, the Godhead, properly. The word theology covers a number of disciplines, and of course we have dogmatic theology, practical theology, and systematic theology, and biblical theology. But in this series of broadcasts, we will be taking up the main doctrines of the Word of God and giving you the Scripture references for these doctrines, showing what the Scriptures say about themselves. Our last broadcast was the first in a series of broadcasts on the doctrine of God. On that broadcast, we discussed the teleological argument for the existence of God, the cosmological argument, the argument from nature, the argument from the Scripture, and the argument from nature. Conscience, nature, the Scripture, all bear witness to the existence of God. And as we said in our previous broadcast, it requires a great deal of dis uh, intellectual dishonesty and a great deal of blind faith to accept the atheistic position. And we discussed this in detail in our previous broadcast. Now, since our main body of theology will deal with God, we are dealing with God the Father, or the person of God, in our first few lessons. And these lessons will come to about 52 lessons, 52 broadcasts, of which 12 will deal with the existence of God the Father, 34 with God the Son, and 16 uh, doctrinal teachings about God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. And as we remarked in our previous broadcast, since the invisible things of God are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, we are not surprised to find that the Trinity is manifest in nature as well as mentioned in the Word of God. The Trinity, for example, is perfectly displayed for us every day by the sun, 24 hours a day. The sun has three types of rays, alpha, beta, and gamma rays, which are light rays, heat rays, and actinic rays. Uh, one of these rays can be seen but not felt, the light ray, a type of God the Son, was manifested where they could see him. Another ray is the heat ray, which can be felt but not seen, a type of God the Holy Spirit. And the third, of course, the actinic ray, can neither be felt nor seen, a type of the soul of God, God the Father. The Trinity, then, is not per se a Catholic doctrine or a Protestant doctrine. The Trinity, per se, is not a Baptist teaching or to be limited to somebody's private theological interpretation. The Trinity is a great fact of nature manifest everywhere in and out of the Bible in all ways. Man is a trinity himself, body, soul, and spirit. We have the Bible speaking of heaven, earth, and hell. We have the Bible giving us three heavens. We have uh, three main branches of men coming from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This trinitarian breakdown can be found out throughout time, which is divided into past, present, and future, and space, which is height and width and breadth, or length, width, and breadth, and is manifest everywhere. On today's broadcast, we consider a few more arguments for the existence of God. The first of these is called the moral argument, sometimes referred to as the anthropological argument, the argument for mankind. Now, man has an intellectual and moral nature that animals don't have, showing that the Creator must not be merely an inanimate force, but a living, intelligent, moral being. The modern teaching being taught to all the college graduates and all the state universities is that if there is a God, he's an impersonal, an impersonal force. The God of modern science is sort of a neuter energy force field, you know, with no morals. 
very convenient. And what? And this brand new, brand new scientific God, of course, has been molded and made in the image of fallen man. As somebody has said, God created man in his own image, and man returned the compliment, which is a rather sarcastic way of saying that ever since Adam fell, men have been inventing gods and making up gods and going to the dime store and going down the counter bargain shopping for gods of their choice. The choice of the modern educated fool with a Ph.D. or a medical degree is an inanimate neuter force that doesn't have any moral standards. Guess why? However, in the Bible we read in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And again in Genesis 1.27, God created man in the image and likeness of God. That is, he patterned man after God. God says in Psalm 94, He that planted the ears, shall he not hear? He that formed the eyes, shall he not see? God has given to man ears, eyes, knowledge, intelligence, and willpower, for these the things that he himself, God, possesses. Man, then, is a miniature, fallen counterpart of God, who was once made in the image of God in righteousness and holiness, and who fell, and still retains in his fallen state the vestigial remnant of the Godhead. Man was made in God's image, not the image of an orangutan or a possum or anybody else in Darwin's family tree that swung by their tails. And we'll talk about this more when we get into our lessons on anthropology, one of the branches of theology which deals with the creation of man. Now, conscience teaches man right and wrong, good and bad, for his creator is a moral being who is holy and loves righteousness and abhors evil. And that is why the God of truth, the God of creation, the God of this universe, has been run off the board by modern man. Modern man does not abhor evil and does not love righteousness. Modern man, per se, especially the educated religious scientific type of man, is a man who believes that righteousness and evil are relative terms which you can switch back and forth. As a matter of fact, they often switch back and forth so much in matters like those discussed by Hugh Hefner and Playboy and we and Playgirl and the Genesis and the rest of the girly magazines, that what they're doing is calling evil good and calling good evil. To such a race of degenerates, the God of the Bible can hardly be accepted or retain his respectable position. After all, when a man hates righteousness and loves sin, he can't have any fellowship with the God of truth and righteousness. The moral argument is simple. Anthropology and the study of anthropology shows that throughout the races, and any ethnology, any type of race, any type of ethnic culture, there are standards of right and wrong. And although they vary slightly from culture to culture, there isn't any culture on the face of this earth that doesn't consider murder a breach of moral standards. Thou shalt not kill. And we'll talk about this more when we get into the doctrines that deal with uh, holiness. When we talk about the interpretation of the Ten Commandments as interpreted the Bible themselves, thou shalt not kill, not applying national defense or personal defense, but to malicious intent, assault and battery with intent to kill on an individual. The Bible doesn't make any mistakes. You may, in your education, it may have taught you and helped you nurture a bad disposition, a dishonest intellect, and a rotten attitude toward the truth, but that's your problem, not ours, and not the Lord's. We have the moral argument. Then we have the life argument. That is, life comes from life. 
except if you're an evolutionist. If you're an evolutionist, life must come from death. If you're a Darwinian anthropologist, you must believe that life originated in the Precambrian fossils, although no fossils have been found, and then gradated gradually up into the complex forms in the Cambrian strata and up to the Mesozoic and Cenozoic periods. You know, that is, life had to come from something that was inanimate and dead. To be a good Darwinian, you have to believe that cooling lava slung off a sun with temperatures above 1,700 degrees Fahrenheit could turn into the chemical elements that would bring forth life from inorganic matter. Man, you talk about space. That takes some faith. Something slung out of a mass that runs 3,600 degrees and cools in the molten lava and becomes minerals, and then these rocks produce life, do they? You realize right now man is searching desperately, Venus and Jupiter and every place he can find to try to prove that Darwin is right? Our government has spent over $50 billion to try to overthrow Genesis 1. Isn't that something? Our government has spent over $50 billion to try to find life on some other planet to prove that life was not unique to this planet. Life comes from life, and the origin of life must have come from a being possessing eternal life. That is, there had to be some life existing before physical life was created, if you're a straight thinker. Now, where can such life be found? It can only be found in God who possesses eternal life. Psalm 36, 9 says, For with thee is the fountain of life. The apple tree, for example, an orange tree, gets its life from the parent tree, the lamb from the mother sheep. Where did they get the life from? You have to go back to the original creation. This answers the problem, what came first, the chicken or the egg, and the answer is obvious, the chicken. Life can only come from life. Jesus said in John 11:25, I am the life. In John 14:6, I am the life. In John 10:28, I give them eternal life. In other places, he said to the educated people of his day, you will not come to me that you might have life. The Bible says, he that has the Son has life, and he that has not the Son of God hath not life. All life proceeds from God. The theory of spontaneous generation has been proved false and completely unacceptable to authoritative science. There isn't a really educated man, although he may wave some degrees in your face, there's not really an educated man anywhere in the world anymore that believes in spontaneous generation, although you may find a few college teachers. Life must have a beginning. And the only logical answer, if you're logical at all, is that the beginning was with God. This is what they call the life argument. Then finally, in our argument for the existence of God, in theological discussion, we have the argument from congruity. The theory of atheism solves no problems, but only multiplies unsolved mysteries. If you've ever taken a book on science or a textbook on science and looked at these scientists have found out since the days of Copernicus and Galileo and before, back to the time of Pythagoras, at Anaximenes, Anaximander, you will find that science has never solved one major problem that mankind had on any continent anywhere in the world. All science does is discover new problems and solve old problems that bring up new problems that remain unsolved. A man said, what about the victory over smallpox? Try cancer. A man said, what about the victory over malaria? Try diabetes. I'll tell us, what about the victory over Pelagra? How about multiple cellulosis? Don't kid us. Go kid the folks that spend all their time getting diplomas who think they're smart. Go kid them. They're gullible. Science has never solved one major problem man ever had. The problem of disease has never been solved. 
the problem of starvation has ever been solved. There will be eight million people going to bed hungry tonight, and a half a million of them will be dead before tomorrow morning. If you don't believe it, travel in in Africa and broaden your education. The most narrow-minded, bigoted, intolerant people in the world, these people have professed to be broad-minded. There isn't any evidence that scientists have solved one major problem of mankind since they began or ever will. The problem of death has never been solved. The problem of poverty has never been solved. Christ said you will always have the poor with you. You say we're working on it. Don't don't talk like a fool. Of course you're working on it. You have to work and make a living. There are all kinds of ways to make a living. You make a living working on those problems. Other folks make a living shelling peanuts and picking chickens off, picking feathers off chickens. So what? The theory of atheism solves no problems, but only multiplies unsolved mysteries. The acceptance of the existence of God as creator of the world is like a magic key that fits all the facts of Scripture, all the facts of science, all the facts of revelation, all the facts of knowledge, and all the facts of conscience and nature. This irrefutable doctrine is held tenaciously by multitudes of souls who are willing to both live and die in the consolation of the assurance that God is. Even the devils believe in God and tremble, the Bible says. So what we may, may we conclude in our first study? In our first study on the existence of God, we may conclude that atheism is only a giant doubt, and its unbelief can only lead to darkness and despair and disaster for the one accepting it. It can only lead to anarchy, paganism, or international socialism with the torture and imprisonment of millions of people who don't knuckle down to a state as God. There isn't any atheist anywhere in Russia. The god of atheism in Russia is international communism. The god of every atheist agnostic in America is international socialism. There is no such thing as a man without a god. The term atheism is like the term annihilation. It really is a nonsensical term which has no meaning at all. If a man doesn't accept one god, he accepts another. And when you find people correcting the Bible, they are setting up their brains and their education as God. Acceptance of Genesis 1-1 in the beginning God leads a sincere seeker into the path of a fuller revelation of God himself as a trinity, as a creator, and above all, as a savior and redeemer. Hebrews 11, verse 6 says, He that cometh to God must believe that he is and is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Then the intelligent man will come to God in a simple faith, based on the revelation of God in the Scripture and nature, believing and trusting that God is, and that a God who would not reveal himself is the wrong God. If there is any God up there at all, he is obligated to reveal himself to his creation, which brings up a deathly blow to agnostic science when we consider that men communicate each other by words. And the thing that sets part man off from the animal as a separate species of creation is the fact that man communicates by the use of words and sentences. Animals have only cries for help, or cries for hunger, or cries of pleasure, or warnings to get away, or invitations to come near. But they cannot communicate by words. Therefore, if there's any God up there at all, and of course we say with no doubt in our own mind, theologically it is impossible to believe in a supreme being who would not reveal himself to his creation by words. 
And this is so fundamental and foundational in theological truth that when Jesus Christ shows up in John 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John says in 1 John chapter 1, That which we have seen and heard and touched with our hands of the Word of life. We Christians sing, sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. If there is a creator at all, he is obligated to reveal himself to his creation. Any God that would create what you find down here and let this world take its course of 6,000 years of torture, abortion, bloodshed, murder, extortion, perversion, death, disease, poverty, heartache, starvation, bereavement, war, imprisonment, any God that would allow a thing like that to happen, and withdraw himself and withhold himself with not taking part in it, you ought to trade in for a Model T Ford and make you some money. Now, it's very important for the theological student to grasp this, because theism and deism both teach in a God, but a God who is not actively interested in participating in his creation. If sin is a problem down here, the God of creation would have to deal with it, or he'd be the wrong God. If death is a problem down here, a God who wouldn't actively participate in the death of his creation is not a compassionate God. Therefore, any God, whether a man believes in God or not, who is not interested in the sin, sorrow, and death of the beings he created is, I say it reverently, a phony. The God of the Bible on the other hand, meets all the requirements. He comes down, God manifests in the flesh, 1 Timothy 3.16, becomes a man, Christ called himself the Son of Man, and a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, a man who was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastens of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes were healed. I say this only to point out to the student or teacher of the Word of God that the God of the Bible is the only God that can meet the requirements of human nature. Any other God is a bitter disappointment and a charlatan. Any other God is a con man. The God of Revelation is the only God that can satisfy the longing of the human heart, for the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the only God in any religion that is actively interested in coming down and sharing the suffering and sorrow of his creature and dying in the place of his creature and offering to his creature eternal life as a free gift that puts all of the gods in the bargain counter with used Edsels and worn-out yo-yos. They are hoaxes. And they are tragic substitutes for the real thing because they cannot satisfy the yearning of the human heart. The people I'm talking to are sinners. Sin could walk up to anybody I'm talking to over this radio this morning and put his finger right in your face and say, Thou art the man. And you know it. They need victory over sin. The people I'm talking to this morning are tempted to do wrong, whether you admit it or not. And ten your moral standards will not relieve you of the obligation. The people I'm talking to this morning are sick. You're dying. There's not a man I'm talking to right now that isn't on your way to a hole in the ground. 
I don't care, son, if you have education or don't. They'll box you in and put you to bed with a shovel. Now, what God can deliver you from that? And how will he know anything about it unless he participated in it? And if this God you worship is nothing but a neuter force or an energy force field in the universe that controls the movement of atoms and protons and electrons, what would he really know about anything? But a two-year-old wouldn't know. All right, this brings us to the logical study of the person of God. The study of God has been the ambition of philosophers and scientists for millenniums. Some people sit down and meditate and try to think into the realm of the eternal being. But the only true knowledge about God can be gained from God's revelation of himself. God is not a subject to the microscopic scrutiny of man. God is the subject of revelation. John 1.18 says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. First John chapter 4, verse 12 says, No man has seen God at any time. The Lord said to Moses in Exodus 33:20, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. Now Moses talked to God and saw a revelation of him, but he did not see the Lord's face directly. Jesus, who is revealed in the Bible as God the Son, comes down from heaven to reveal God the Father to sinners. So when he spoke to Philip in John chapter 14, verse 7 to 11, Jesus says that he is the revelation of God. He said, He that has seen me hath seen the Father. Pagan wisdom says, Man, know thyself. Mohammedism says, Man, submit thyself. Modern education says, Man, realize thyself. Romanism says, Man, rule thyself. Buddhism says, Man, submerge thyself. But Jesus said, Deny thyself, and come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In John 17, verse 3, we read how God and Christ his Son have eternal life to give. And we read, quote, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. You say, well, about all these other religions that profess the same thing. Easy. Try them out, you'll find them to be hoaxes. Try them out, you'll find they don't give you victory over sin. They put you in a passive state where you pretend you don't have any sins when you still have them. At the great Congress on Religions, the World's Fair, back in 1932, when the votaries of scores of religions got together to talk about their ecumenical magpie nest to try to bring all men together on the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. After nearly a week of discussion, Joseph Cook stood up in that group of dignitaries, which included Roman Catholic cardinals and bishops and Greek Orthodox uh, elders and patriarchs and Protestant deacons and preachers and Mohammedan uh, uh, teachers and readers of the Koran and Buddhist and Hindu gurus and chelders. Joe Smith stood up or Joseph Cook stood up and raised his hand and said, How cleansest thou this red right hand? Now, if you don't recognize the quotation, the quotation is from Macbeth. And after Macbeth commits his murder, he says, How cleansest thou this red right hand? That is, now that I have sinned, how do I get clean? 
There was no religion that could tell him how to do it permanently. The Roman came in, told him to confess it and get contrition and absolution for it and do penance for it. But he couldn't know for sure the thing was gone because he could only hope for heaven and couldn't know for sure whether he was going to hell or not till he was dead. The Protestants told him to do a good life to amend for his sins. The Brahmas and Buddhists insisted that if he'd followed the Noble Eightfold Path, he wouldn't have committed the sin. But that never solved the problem. The problem was having sinned against an eternal being who lives forever. How do I pay for it unless I make an eternal payment? That's the problem. I had no answer to it. There's no answer to it unless what the Bible says is true. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth us from all sin. And again, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, Colossians chapter 1, verse 14. Coming to our next lesson on the person of God, we discussed God's personality. Personality, of course, is characterized by possessing knowledge, feeling, and willpower. An idol is devoid of personality, for an idol neither knows, feels, nor responds. Our God is an individual that is living and has definite personality characteristics. God is a person. He is not an influence or an unseen force or power like electricity. Jeremiah 10, 10 says, quote, The Lord is the true God. He is the living God. Acts 14, 15 says, Turn from these vanities to the living God. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 says, The converts turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. We read in 2 Chronicles 69, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout all the earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect. The moving eyes of God denote life and personality. They're what we call anthropomorphic expressions, which means, of course, that God is speaking in a language we can understand. We understand, of course, by the passage that the Lord right now, God the Father, does not have two eyeballs and eyelids and eyelashes, but his Son had them, and his Son was God manifest in the flesh, and when he was here on this earth, he lifted up his eyes and looked on the fields white in the harvest. He had eyes that looked out across the Sea of Galilee. Of course, in the absolute sense, what we know that God is a spirit, and the eye of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, we understand we are speaking, speaking anthropomorphologically, that is, we're speaking morphos, the form, anthropos, the man, likened to a man's form. But after all, my dear uh, agnostic, if God was going to reveal himself to men, why wouldn't he use a man's language? I'd like to see you reveal yourself to an animal by giving them a ten... Uh, a 1040 income tax blank, and speaking to him in plain English what the thing says, the spirit of beast communicates to beast and the spirit of the beast, the spirit of man communicates to man, the spirit of man, the spirit of God cannot communicate to the spirit of man unless he uses anthropological expressions because these are man's expressions. Anthropological means like man. And anthropomorphism means a form like a man's form. So when the Bible speaks about God's eyes and heart and his nose and his ears, of course it's speaking in common, ordinary language you can understand. Otherwise, you couldn't understand it. What could be clearer than that? <laughs> so in our study of theology, the first thing we need to know about God after knowing that he exists is we need to know that as a person he has a personality. On our next broadcast, we'll talk about God's nature, God's unity, God's natural attributes, and God's moral attributes. This, of course, will be the third broadcast on theology. 
We trust you'll be with us from week to week on the Theological Seminar of the Air, and so do with us the great theological doctrines of the Word of God. Our first series, we have said before, deals with God, the nature of God, and in particular, the nature of God the Father. Until our next study on our next broadcast at the same time next week, may the Lord bless you, and good day.